0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we will, Lord willing, today complete the second part of uh, Holy Ever After from Ephesians five twenty-two through 33. Now, let me ask wives in the room, how many of you were here two weeks ago to hear part one of Holy Ever After? And you came back. I'm glad. I was afraid maybe that I'd scared some of you off. Uh, good to see you back. Just to give you a review before we jump into this, uh, what we talked about two weeks ago from this passage is that marriage is hard work, but it's worth it. That we come off times we come into marriage, or the idea of marriage with certain expectations that may be false, maybe misconceptions, and they come from a number of different, different places. They come from the media. Oftentimes, TV and movies and, and all those things, as well as the dating experience, and then also from just watching our parents or watching others in our lives. We, we have these these examples that lead us to maybe some misconceptions that we bring in. But we talked about the fact that it would be so much better if rather than starting at those places, we started where God said. and We came at this issue of marriage from biblical expectations instead of writing what we think onto what God has given to us. So that's what we talked about two weeks ago. And I I just really implored the the wives in the room to to not not get impatient because I wasn't dealing with the husbands and to not get mad and to come back and, and all those things. Well, men... We're up. You ready? Y'all are quiet today. Are y'all okay? Like, is there some sort of atmospheric pressure that's, like, got you all down? Okay. Maybe so. I don't know. Uh, Well, here. Men, you're up. Uh, We also come in with certain misconceptions. We come in with two in particular. More than this, but two in particular, we come in with false expectations of what is real manhood? If you look around at the examples that we see of what the world is telling us a real man is, here are some, some just examples of that. We, we hear phrases like, well, he's a man's man. Well, I understand what's meant by that, but oftentimes I think it, it, would, it would point to maybe he's, he's an athlete, he's strong, he, he never cries, uh, he's always self-reliant, he's, he's, just, he's got it all together, he's a man's man. And these are false expectations that maybe you and I bring into this issue of marriage. And this is what it means to be a man. Perhaps you witnessed something in your growing up, watching how your father interacted with your mother, or a grandfather with a grandmother. And it was less than biblical, and it was, it was something that now you've carried in and you think, well, this is what it must mean to be a man. And what I want to do today is I want to allow the Word of God to shatter that for you. I'm not saying that we do away with masculinity because I believe that gender is from God and we see this all the way back to creation that in the very first mention of humanity, gender is attached to it. This issue of male and female. So I'm not saying do do away with masculinity. What I am going to say to you is that we oftentimes have misdefined what masculinity is. Another misconception that we bring into this issue of marriage men is the ideal woman. We, we look at a woman and we're looking for a woman oftentimes that uh, is, is easy on the eyes. And this is probably the first thing for us that, that is attractive to us. It, it draws us to her because men, stereotypically, we are very visual. And so we, wanna, we want a woman who is gorgeous. I mean, she needs to be a straight up 10 who's obviously into twos if she's going to be after you, Right. I mean, that's my thing. I hear all the time, you married up. Well, I know that. (laughs) And I tell people all the time, I like to think that just as often as I hear it, she hears it, she married up. And I know I'm fooling myself. Okay? But we are attracted because we think we've got to find an attractive, beautiful woman. One who's fun and has a sense of humor and is into all the things that we like. That she ought to be into, into whatever sport we're into. If we're into tractor pools, man, she ought to be in the tractor pools, you know? All this stuff, right? David back there, amen. That's a good amen, David. <laughs> we, we, we look for a woman who's intellectually stimulating. Not too much, though, because we don't want her showing us up, right? Like we don't want her to be the smartest one in the room. She has to be smart, but just a little less smart than us, so that we can carry on a conversation. We have to find a woman whose life goal is to make us look good. Right? Like she gets up in the morning and says, "How can I make my husband look good today?" Well, as I went through that list, do you know what I've just described? I have just described the plot of the 1985 blockbuster Weird Science. If you grew up in the 80s, this is the movie. These boys were nerds, and they were rejected at school, and they couldn't get, a, couldn't get a girl, and so they decided to invent one, and they hacked the government database, and, and they hooked probes up to a Barbie doll and all these things, and they created a woman for themselves, and she was all those things. The reality, man, is we have misconceptions about what it means to be a man and about who the ideal woman is. And I, I can't help but to think, as I was studying and preparing for this over the last couple of weeks, I thought about how women, there are so many books, I don't know if you've noticed this, there are so many books and, and movies and TV shows, and, and I, I'm, I'm still in the world of direct TV, I'm not in the world of, of Netflix and Hulu and all that kind of stuff, but there's so much of that that is geared toward women, and we talked about this two weeks ago, that presents these perfect men. Or these something in a man that is, that is missing somehow. And women are oftentimes led to fantasize about, about whatever this man is. And somehow, I, I can't help but to think, is it possible, men, that the reason that there is so much of that that's coming out and the reason that women are having to spend so much time fantasizing is because their husbands aren't loving them the way God tells them to in the real world. I think that may be the case because I think we have it upside down about what love really is. And so, with that in mind, read along with me, follow along as I read verses 22 through 33 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Today, I want to walk through and, and give you just a little bit, uh, a couple things, a definition of what this love is, and then how that is played out, husbands, in how we love our wives. So, starting off, what does love really mean? Well, in verse 25, He says to us there, Husbands, love your wives. Notice that if we look back two weeks ago, and we looked at verses 22 through 24, their wives are told to submit to their husbands, and we talked about headship and how God has given authority and leadership in the relationship to them, to, to the husband, and, and He calls wives then to follow their husbands. But here in the section on husbands, notice what's missing. God never says to the husband, Get control over your wife. Gain authority over her. Instead, that's not the command at all. The command is love your wife. And so wives in the room, maybe, maybe if, if you weren't familiar with the text, maybe you thought this is where it was going that now God's going to say to these men, now follow through on what I just said. But instead, it's, it's not what you expect. He says, love your wives. The word love here, in the English language, we have one word for love. And that's what leads us to be able to say, I love my wife, I love my dog, I love pizza, I love my truck. We have no word to distinguish between those types of love. Obviously, my love for my, my truck is not the same as my love for my wife. It better not be, right? But in Greek, there are multiple words to describe love. There is, Now, I won't give you all of them, but there's phileo, where we get the Philadelphia, the brotherly love, right? There's eros, which is this erotic love that's romantic and between a, a husband and a wife. But also then, there, the word that's here is neither of those. It is agapeo. And it's, it's the love of the will. It's not, it's not brotherly love. It's not erotic sexual love. It is the love of the will. It's a generous love. It's an all-encompassing love. In other words, for better or worse. It is, it is intentional. Meaning that he's not sitting back and waiting. He's, he's intending to love his wife. He's determined. He's determined. And it's, a, it's going to go the long haul. This is the agape oh, This is what God calls us to when He says husbands, love agapeo your wives. But then He qualifies it with these this little phrase as christ loved the church and so we're not left to just take this word and go back to the greek and find out what it means we have this visual picture of how christ loved the church and i want to walk through these today and before i do let me just say this obviously husbands we will never be able to love our wives with the perfect love that christ loved the church we won't, we won't be able to do it. It just will not happen. We can love them well, but we will fall short of what of what Jesus, in the way that He loved the church. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. His, his model should be our model. The way He loved the church should be our aim. Even though we will never be able to live up to that, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. You know, you'll never be able to play basketball like LeBron. You'll never be able to Play golf like Jordan Spieth. You'll never be able to catch fish like Michael Daconelli or fill in your sport or your hobby and who's the best, and you'll never be able to do that. But it does not stop you from trying. Before my ankles got so bad, I used to get out on the court and think, man, if I just, if I just played in high school, man, I could, been, I could have played college ball and then I could have been, went to the NBA, and I had all these grand thoughts. The reality is I thought way too much of myself. I get on the golf course now and I think, man, this is the day, this is the day where I'm going to do so well, and I try. And oftentimes I spend more time looking for balls in the woods because I shank them out of bounds. But I still go out and try. And the reality, husbands, I don't want you to walk away from this sermon today thinking, well, I I can't live up to that, I'll never live up to that, so I just might as well not try. The reality is the difference between Jordan Spieth and, and LeBron and whatever, whoever, the difference is where they are dependent on their own skills, you have the Holy Spirit as a believer that resides within you to give you the power to obey the command that God gives to you. So de- depend on the power of the Spirit within you. So how has Christ loved the church? And this is where we'll spend most of our time today. I have five ways today that Christ loved the church. For those of you who are taking notes. Number one, with initiating love. With initiating love. 1 John 4, 19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. Romans 5, 8, I quote it often in that while we were yet sinners, we're still sinners. Some translations say we were enemies of God while we were there. God demonstrated his love for us in that he died for us. He initiated this love. Husbands in the room, and let me tell you something, this is a hard sermon to preach because I know how far I have fallen short and continue to fall short in this. So don't hear me heaping guilt on you today. I want you to feel the the grace and the mercy that can be extended to you in the gospel. But husbands, if you're waiting for your wife to make the first move, you have it backwards. If I'm waiting for my wife to make the first move in love, then I've got it backwards because we don't love our wives based on her performance. We don't don't love our wives based on her beauty. We love our wives based on the love of Christ that's in us. And I want to give you a a spoiler alert here. Uh, I want to tell you that this is going to sound, what I'm getting ready to say, is going to sound like a great place to say amen. But I just want to warn you, it's not okay and this is a heads up because i just don't want you to get in trouble i don't want men to have sore ribs in a minute because their wives poke them all right so here just just hold your amen for just a second there will be times when she isn't lovely there will be times definitely when you are not respectable but somebody has to make the first move and men god says it's us If we're going to love our wives like Christ loved the church, we will not sit back and wait for the church to make the first move toward God. They couldn't. We will not sit back and wait for our wives to make the first move toward us. We will initiate and move toward them. That means we have to be quick to say that we're sorry. Now, there may be an argument that you have where you don't own much of the responsibility in it. Maybe it's... and I. Maybe it's 95% her, but maybe it's 5% you. You are 100% responsible for that 5%. And so what God calls us to is to be responsible for that 5% and to make the move toward our wives and say, Honey, I'm sorry. This is what I've done, and, and I should not have done it, and I was unfair to you, and I need you to forgive me. What it means if we're going to initiate love with our wives is that we will pursue her according to her love language. This is coming out of a book by Gary Chapman. It's a classic. It's been around for years. But he identifies there these five different love languages. And and probably your wife has a tendency to receive love in one of these languages. He identifies them as sometimes women receive love by touch, by physical touch. Some by acts of service, just doing little things for them. Some by bringing them gifts, just showing up with flowers or something like that. Others with quality time. You don't have to really spend any money. You just need to be with her. And then others by meaningful words. This is the the one that is my wife's love language, is meaningful words. And uh, when we dated, I did a really good job of this. Because I was trying to get her, and there's something that happens in the, in the mind of a man that says, "Once I've got her, I can quit all that. The hunt's over, right?" And the reality is, God says, "Don't stop." Um, I, I don't know. A couple of thanks or uh, Valentine's days ago, um, my gift to my wife was this blank journal. And in this journal, I bought it with the intention of just periodically bringing out that journal and just writing to my wife. And the the deal is, when I I write to my wife, because I know this is how she is loved, I write to her just something simple. Hey, I was thinking about you, or I saw this in you. I love this about you. I love our life together. You're a a great mother. You're a great whatever it be. And and the deal is, I bring this out, and I, I write to her, and I put it to where she'll find it. Sometimes I hide it, hide it under her pillow or something like that, put it in her makeup or something. Other times I leave it out in plain sight, and when she gets it, she reads it, and then the deal is she puts it back in the, in the place where it's stored for me to do again. And you wouldn't believe what that does for my wife. My wife loves that. Uh, I pulled this out yesterday, and I, I, was, I thought about bringing this in and reading some of the things, but really those are thoughts between us. But I, I pulled this out yesterday, and I wrote to her. And I came in the bedroom, kind of half forgetting that I had written in this book to her. And she was in the bathroom, and she came out of the bathroom, and she was crying. And I immediately thought, what did I do? Like, I'm sorry, honey, what did I do? And I realized, I remembered that I had written in this book. And just this one little simple act that took me probably ten minutes to sit down and actually think about my wife and express my love to her, the way she receives love, did more for her in that moment than anything else I could have done. So how does your wife receive love? Initiate that. Plan it. You say, well, if I plan it, doesn't that take all the romance out of it? Well, how's the romance going if you never do it? Planning it's not hurting that. Make time for it. And pursue your wife. Be the one, men, who initiate love with her. Secondly, how has Christ loved the church and how are we supposed to love our wives? Secondly, with sacrificial love the bible here says in verse 25 that he gave himself up for her now a couple of passages that come to mind philippians 2 5 through 8 have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus loved us with sacrificial love. Listen also to Mark chapter 10, 42 through 45. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Perhaps there would be some that would not have heard all of what I said two weeks ago, and you would think, as a husband, it is your job to lord this authority over your wife. Now, listen to the way Jesus loves the church. Some of the Gentiles you've heard rule over, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, Christian. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. One of the things that pops out when you look at, look at the, the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ is that no one took His life. This is what the world thinks, is that, man, this, this movement that Jesus was leading was going fairly well. I mean, he was drawing crowds, he was creating this ruckus. It was going fairly well until they had enough, and they, they ran their plan, they arrested him, and they crucified him. And man, it would have been so great if he hadn't have fell to that. But the reality is, nobody took Jesus' life. Jesus laid his life down willingly. Jesus himself said, no one takes my life, I give it. And men, this is the way that we are called to love our wives. God could have told us to establish our headship by dominance, but he doesn't. Instead, I mean, some religions do that, but instead he doesn't tell that. He tells husbands that you are to love your wives by giving yourself up for her. Brian Chapel, in his commentary on this passage, said this. I want you to hear these words. Biblical headship, men, shifts the focus from taking charge to taking responsibility and from asserting one's will to giving oneself to the good of another. Headship is more a function of controlling our nature than controlling our wives. You want to lead in your home? Lead yourself first. Lead yourself to die to yourself, to give yourself to your wife. I just couldn't help but to think about this in maybe just some more down-to-earth terms. Jesus got off his heavenly throne to serve his bride. And there are many men who won't get off their recliner to serve their wives. Men, we must serve our wives. We must love them with a sacrificial love. Now, this looks differently in every relationship. But what it means is there are some arguments that you can lose... You don't have to be right on that because in the big scheme of things, it does not matter where you go to eat. It really doesn't matter. You're going to take in protein and fat and carbs and a certain amount of calories, and that's it. You don't have to be the one to say, well, I wanted pizza, and just that's a hill that you have to die on. Instead, in that moment, if your wife wants to go over here to this place, maybe that's an argument that you can say, okay, honey. And you you lose those things and you die to yourself so so that one day when you have to pull out that credibility to win here and you have to make a stand and say this is where we must go, your wife will willingly follow you because she's seen you die to yourself over and over and over again. Third, we must love our wives with a purifying love. Initiating, sacrificial, and a purifying love. This, I think, is one of those that I think maybe we get sacrificial. We don't always practice it real well, but we kind of get and we understand it. But this one, men, we are not encouraged anywhere in our culture to love our wives with a purifying love. Our our culture tells us over and over again that that we we should drag our wives into the mud. And listen to this, verses 26 and 27 that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The word splendor there is is a word that means glorious. It means means radiance and beautiful. Beautiful. And he's not there talking about this worldly beauty. Jesus didn't die and give himself to the church so that he could make this worldly, beautiful bride, the church. He doesn't want us to be out there just like the world. Matt spoke last week of being in the world, but not of it. Jesus died so that he could set us apart. Jesus died and loves us so that he would make us beautiful and pure and holy. And we should love our wives wives the same way. And what this means for us husbands is that we should never lead our wives into areas that the Bible calls sin. We should never try to use our dominance or use our influence to lead our wives into things like viewing pornography or whatever the case may be, telling a lie here. We ought never to be the ones who are leading our wives into sin. When we do that, we are acting so much more like Satan than we are God. Instead, we ought to be washing them with the water of God's Word. This comes perfectly on the heels of Matt's sermon last week because as the the parents are to take the responsibility in the home for their children husbands are to take the responsibility for the spiritual growth of their wives they're responsible for it now here's what i would say to you husbands is this washing of your wife with the water of god's word is not to be a pressure washer as men it's like more power the better right let me show my age a little bit you remember home improvement tim the tool man taylor you know we just think, man, the, the, I just alienated all the young people in the room, right? But we as men sometimes think the, the more abrupt, the more abrasive, the better. We'll take care of this thing real quick. And we, maybe we see our wives and, and we, we see that they are participating in something sinful and we say, God calls me to wash her with the water of the word. Maybe she's gossiping and you say, you know what? James tells you that if you are gossiping and all this kind of stuff, that your religion is useless. Now, how's that going to... How's that going to wash over your wife? I know this. If I come to my wife in that way, I've not washed her. In fact, I've thrown more mud on her. And I have separated and I've pushed her away from me even further. So God never calls us to to wash our wives with this abrasive pressure washer style of, of washing them in the Word. But what it does mean, husbands, is that when we see our wives straying from the Lord, that it is our responsibility to winsomely and gently and maybe at times aggressively call our wives back to show them where God's word teaches on this and to show them the error of the attitude or the behavior. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. When Genesis 3 there, when, when, when Satan comes, when the serpent comes and he tempts Eve and he says, "Where has God really said that you can't eat from this tree? And, and Eve takes eventually the fruit and she eats it. Who does God hold responsible? Now obviously, obviously the wife, Eve, is, is punished and the serpent is punished, but it is Adam who holds the ultimate responsibility. And the picture there in Genesis 3 is that Adam takes this passive role and he's probably standing by and watching as wife has this this conversation with the devil and he does nothing. And men, it should never be the case with us that we stand by passively and be content to watch our wives be taken into sin. Instead, that the Bible here says that we should be sanctifying them or setting them apart to God. It doesn't mean that we are their savior but it does mean that God has given us a role to represent Him to our wives. I would just ask you the question, husbands, are you guarding your wife's heart and helping her to see Jesus? If not, you are laying down the job. You are becoming like Adam standing by and just letting things happen. Now, Paul here points out one difference for us in the way that we are to love our wives with purifying love. There he says that Christ loved the church this way so that he could present the church to himself in this way. Well, the reality is we're not going to present our wives to ourselves. We're going to present our wives to God. Now, our wives on the day of judgment will stand on their own two feet and they will be responsible for themselves and all those sort of things. But there is a way in which husbands, God has placed you into, the, into your wife's life so that you might prepare her for glory. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things... To Him be glory forever. So the way that you love your wife, you ought to love her in such a way that you say, one day I want to be able to stand before the Father with my wife and present my wife to Him and say, Father, thank You for the gift of my wife. Look at her beauty. Husbands, I would say to you that while you may not be God's... I wrote this as that you are God's number one instrument in your wife's holiness... I rethought that later on. I don't think you're the number one instrument. I think the Word of God, the Spirit of God probably takes precedent over that. Maybe the church uh, is in there either for third or fourth. But you're certainly right there third or fourth as well. God's placed you as one of the primary instruments for the holiness of your bride. Are you laying down on the job? Fourth. We are to love our wives not only with this initiating, sacrificial, purifying love, but with a considerate love. Verses 28 through 30 say, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now, those words nourish there means to provide for, cherish means to keep warm. So, the idea there is that there is this provision and this security that God has provided in you for your wife. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds about this, but I just want to say to you, husbands, that, that you ought to be at least fulfilling those things providing for and secure, providing security for your wife. Sometimes that security comes in the form of making sure the house is locked up. Sometimes it comes in the form of cuddling. But you're providing security and provision for her. And I would say to you, isn't this how Christ has loved us? Hasn't, hasn't he, uh, has He not provided everything that we need for salvation? Does He not even now Secure us. We talked in our Bible study this morning that He's right now interceding for us. That He keeps us. He holds us there. He has loved us by providing and keeping us secure. That's what 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we need, we have because our Heavenly Husband has loved us well. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We are secure because our heavenly husband loves us with securing love. Paul offers to us a motivation to love our wives with this considerate love. He says that by caring for your wife, that we are caring for ourselves. He says that there in verse 28. And he bases this, I think, on the principle that when the two are married, the two become one flesh. The two, they don't cease to be individual, but they have somehow become one together in a way that only God could understand and and fully make happen. And when a husband loves his wife, because they are one, he's actually loving himself. And just as you are God's number one instrument for her holiness, she is a gift from God to complete you and to sanctify you. As you nourish and cherish her, what you're doing is you're equipping her to also then turn around and help you. By loving her, you're loving yourself. And listen to the words of Tim Keller. He wrote this in, the, in a book, The Meaning of Marriage. Um, he said this, Falling in love is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you're taking to His throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. Do we have that understanding in our marriages We love our wives with this considerate love, and that by loving our wives, we're loving ourselves, and we're we're helping one another on to glory. And the fifth way that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church is with inseparable love. Verse 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The phrase there, that little two-word phrase, hold fast, is is oftentimes in the older language translated as cleave. It's the imagery of setting in concrete. You set something in concrete, it's not easy to get rid of. What he's saying there is that when you enter into marriage, you do so in such a way that you submit yourself to one another. This would have been scandalous in the ancient world. According to ancient Roman law, if a man caught his wife having an affair, committing adultery, he could kill her without a trial. It was within his rights. Sadly, I think the idea of an inseparable love has become just as scandalous in America today. Divorce for any reason is rampant. People say, well, this didn't work out. Something better come along. And we end this covenant of marriage. And I in no way want to heap guilt on you today if you have been through a divorce. There's grace, there's mercy to cover whatever it is in our past. But I do want to draw attention to the fact that we have lowered the standards for what God calls marriage. Anybody else find it ironic in our culture that, that men and women are treating marriage with less seriousness while men and men and women and women are treating it with this ultimate seriousness? Perhaps maybe on the rise is this growing tendency to say, well, why would we even get married at all? I mean, if we get married, that's just going to cause issues down the road. We'll just, we'll just live together. We'll get a dog together. We'll have kids together. Buy a house together. But we're not going to get married. And what that says is that I, I love you, but I don't love you enough to submit myself to you. How has Jesus loved us? I twice already in my Bible study this morning my Sunday school class and then Ethan read this from the the, uh, podium today Romans 8 35-39 listen to how Jesus has loved us who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the context of marriage, hear that as Jesus' vow to love us for better or worse. Whatever may come. He goes one step further, though, than, than a human vow, and He says, not just till death do us part, but not even death will part us. And When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, it's then that we'll sing this sweeter, more noble song. Because our relationship with Christ goes beyond the grave. He has loved us with this inseparable love. Men, I would tell you take adultery off the table, take divorce off the table, make a covenant with your eyes, guard your daily activities. No matter what the world says, and they, they will make fun. When you set up parameters for your life that says, I, I, I just can't be alone with another woman. They made fun of our vice president for that. We just said goodbye to one of the, one of the greatest evangelical Christians throughout history, Billy Graham. Billy Graham got to the end of his life unscathed because he guarded his life. It wasn't because of what was in Billy Graham. It's because he took seriously the commands of God and said, by the power of the Spirit, Lord, guard me. Love your wife with an initiating, sacrificial, purifying, considerate, inseparable love. Now here's the way I'll end this sermon. I ended, Two weeks ago, I ended the same way. So I'm going to end the same way today. It doesn't mean I want you to check out. I just want repetition to maybe let this sink into your mind. Marriage is more for God than it is for you. So, what he says there in verse 32 this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If the aim of your marriage, this is for husbands and wives, if the aim of your marriage is you, you're not just missing the mark, you're missing the target. Because God says, marriage is my idea, it is my creation, and I created it to reflect my relationship to the church. Marriage is to be lived out as that reflection. And each role, whether you are a wife or a husband, each of those roles requires submission. Wives, maybe you walked away two weeks ago and you said, I really don't like that word submit. How come we have to submit and he just gets to lead? Have you heard how he is to lead? He is not to lead by dominance. He is to lead by taking the initiative, by giving himself, by seeking your purity and your beauty and your splendor. He is to care for you, to provide for and to bring security to your life. And He is to submit Himself to you. Every role, wife or husband, will require this submission. Wives, you give a picture of the church's submission to Christ when you voluntarily submit to your husband. And husbands, you give a picture of Christ's headship over the church when you willingly give yourself to lovingly lead your wife through service, As each partner lives out their respective role, the world sees the gospel. And this is God's reason for marriage. Not so that we might find the other person and have this Jerry Maguire moment, you complete me. But so that we would find this one that God says is now bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. You know, the only time that God ever said uh, on, on the other side of the fall, in Genesis 1 and 2, the only thing that God said was not good was man's aloneness. Now some of you today, and, and, and hear me, some of you are called to singleness. And this is a calling that, that the Spirit of God will empower you to live through, to live in, and to live well, and to be blessed in, and to enjoy for His glory. Some of you right now are widows or widowers. You may or may not ever marry again. That's something that God will see you through. But I cannot walk away from, I cannot step away from the fact that in Genesis 1 and 2, God looks at the aloneness of Adam and says, it's not good. And do we understand that God has given us us one another so that we might help one another to live holy ever after. Now here's here's the invitation for you today. I want you to confess your sin to God. Husbands, you'd be fooling yourself if you could make it through this text and this sermon and think, I'm killing this thing. I got this. If that's your attitude, I want to talk to your wife. Be honest with yourself. I've had to be honest with myself over the last three weeks because I couldn't get away from this passage. I had to keep going back to it and study it. And every time it would come, purifying love, God forgive me. Sacrificial love, oh, babe, I'm sorry. Own your sin. Confess it to God. There is mercy. There is grace for you in the gospel and then i would i would implore you to admit your failures to your spouse and to seek their forgiveness maybe maybe you've just been sort of ignorant when it came to this and you just didn't know that you were supposed to be doing all these things and maybe you just need to go to your wife and say babe i just i had no idea and i've missed the target and from this point forward by the power of the spirit in me i want to love you the way christ loved the church and, and push, press into your wife. And then I would, I would implore you, I did this two weeks ago, I would just implore you as husbands and wives to come to the steps, come to this altar this morning and pray. And you say, well, there's nothing magical about coming up front, is there? No, there's not. But perhaps, husbands, it would be a gesture towards your wife that would cause her to press into you and, and, and to see the seriousness with which you want to love her to come and just kneel together as a husband and wife and just pray, Lord, what you've called us to is hard, but I know that you'll give me grace to live in it. You will not call me anywhere that you don't provide for me to go. As these husbands and wives come and pray, again, two weeks ago, I I just implored kids in the room, take the time to pray for your parents. Pray for your mom and dad singles in the room pray for these couples pray for your potential future spouse if you've been blessed maybe with this lifelong gift of singleness then pray that God would make you content and able to use your life to bring glory to himself widows and widowers in the room take some time during this response and thank God for the spouse that he gave you and then pray for these couples that their marriages would flourish to the glory of God. There are people in this room who were married for decades and now your spouse is gone. Your, your marriage was never perfect, but it was good. And what better thing could you do today than to pray for married couples and ask God to lead them to live and to love one another for the sake of the kingdom. Let me pray together and then you respond. Jesus, Lord, we are overcome with what you call us to. We're overwhelmed, God. Lord, we're overwhelmed because we know the depravity of our own hearts. We know how quick we are to prefer ourselves over our spouse. So God, we need your help. Lord, we need you to intervene. God, I pray that in the midst of this response, Lord, that you might convict us where we have fallen short. And God, that conviction would be not the same as guilt. That while we might see ourselves as guilty, that we would not see it as a hopeless position. But God, that you might convict us and lead us to the cross. God, I pray that in this room, during this response, that husbands and wives would experience the freedom of the Gospel. Lord, that in this response that You might lead husbands to confess their sins to their wife and that wives might confess their sins to their husband. And God, that You might restore relationships. That You might breathe new life there. That just as You breathe into the valley of dry bones, and they began to shake and rattle and stand up before You, Lord, that marriages that are dead in this room might come to life through the power of Your your Gospel today. Lord, I pray, God, that the marriages that that represent this faith family, Lord, would flourish. Lord, that husbands would willingly give themselves for their wives. That they would love them in such a way to lead them to You. That wives would... Would respond to that love and that leadership, and they would follow their husbands. And God, that families in this place, Lord, might be marked by the hope of the gospel. God, I pray this in your name for your glory. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.